You're going to watch the Super Bowl? Eh, maybe. Yeah, yeah, good. Super Bowl time is interesting. It's fun leading up to the Super Bowl because everybody becomes an expert in football. It's awesome to hear people on TV talk about, you know, which team is going to win and why they're going to win and who has the advantage. And, and it, it, it's fascinating to get into all those conversations. It builds anticipation as we look forward to the big game. And what we've been talking about for at least the last two weeks, really more than that, but at least these last two weeks as we've been waiting for the, the Super Bowl is, is how to win the game. Well, this morning I want us to look at how God's people win. We, we're not involved in a game, we're involved more in a war. But the principles that we learn as we look in the Old Testament, as we look in Scripture at how God's people won real battles, real physical battles, will help us be better prepared for our real spiritual battles. And so I want us to look at one of those battles. We're in Exodus this morning, Exodus chapter 17. I want us to think together about how God's people win. In Exodus 17, we're going to begin at verse 8. What has happened so far is God has delivered his people from Egypt. And you remember that whole story, you know, the, the great big plagues and how Pharaoh was stubborn and He'd say, okay, you can go, and then no, you can't, and another plague, and okay, you can go, no, you can't, and another plague, and on and on it went, and finally they get to go free. On their way, they get to the, the, the sea, and God parts the sea for his people, and then he closes the sea over Pharaoh's people and kills them off, and then he starts to lead his people through the wilderness, and after they get the law, after they move on for a while, they're wandering out there in the wilderness. Then verse 8, Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Now, as soon as I read that verse, something inside of me says, wait a minute, that's not fair. For one thing, apparently Amalek attacked kind of from behind. He kind of snuck up on them. And, you know, that's not a very courageous way to battle. But more than that, understand that Israel is a nation. However, they have been enslaved for a very, very long time. They don't have a trained and prepared military. They've been making bricks for generations. So our first instinct is, wait a minute, this is... Uh, this is not fair. If we're going to fight, we ought to fight fair at least. It says that Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. It goes on to say then in verse 9, so Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. He says in verse 9, Moses said to Joshua. That's the first time that we ever hear that name in Scripture. Well, this is the first time we're introduced to him, and before we know anything about him, he's, all, he's already the general of the army who's going to lead in the battle. Joshua, choose for us men. Go out and fight 
with Amalek. What we learn about Joshua is his name in Egypt was Hosea, which means salvation. But later, Moses recognized him as a leader, and he changed his name from Hosea to Joshua, which is Yahweh is salvation. By the way, you and I call Jesus, Jesus. His parents called him Joshua. Jesus is kind of a Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua. God saves. And so the battle begins with Moses speaking to the one whose name means God brings salvation and says, go, get the guys together and let's fight. The first thing that we learn in how God's people win is that we, we win when we stand up against his enemies. We win when we stand up against his enemies. Moses could have looked around and he could have seen the, the Amalekites coming and he could have said, this is a no-win deal. We're not, we're not battle ready. We've never had a fight before. We don't have an army. We just have to give in and give up. But instead, he said, Yahweh brings salvation, find us a way. Get out there and let's fight. They stood up against God's enemies. And I love how he structured the plan. Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of a hill with the staff of God in my hand. And we say, well, what in the world is that all about? He's going to send Joshua and the other dudes to fight, and he's going to go hiking? He's going to go up on a hill with a, with a walking stick? But you'll notice that it says, I'll stand there with the, the staff of God in my hand. That verse, that last part of that verse, is incredibly important and so easily for us to overlook. He says, I'm going to stand with the staff of God in my hand. Well, he's talking about what used to be his walking stick. In Exodus chapter 4, God, actually Exodus chapter 3 is where the conversation begins. There's a burning bush that's not burning. And God speaks to Moses. says, Moses, I want you to go and I want you to get my people from Egypt and I want you to lead them out and set them free. And Moses says, yeah, but I can't do that. I don't talk right. And God said, dude, I made your mouth. I'll, I'll use your mouth how I want to use it. Yeah, but I can't do that. I'm in charge. Yeah, but I can't. But I Excuse after excuse. And then we get to chapter 4. And God finally looks at Moses and he says, Moses, what is that in your hand? <laughs> Moses looks at it and he says, a stick, a staff. God says, you take that staff and throw it on the ground. He threw it on the ground, and what happened? It became a snake. And that snake is slithering around on the ground, right? And then God tells Moses to do something nuts. What does God tell Moses to do? Pick it up by the tail. If there's a snake, I'm not picking up the snake. If there's a snake, John ain't there no more anyway. 
But if John was told by Almighty God to pick up a snake, John would pick up the snake behind his head, not his tail. You grab a snake behind his head so he can't whip around and get you. God is testing Moses to a huge extent. Throw the stick down. What's in your hand? Give it up. Let go of it. Now, obey me. Pick up the snake by the tail. Moses reaches down and picks it up by the tail, and sure enough, it becomes a stick again. God says to each one of us, I believe, what's in your hand? Nothing but a textbook, then teach. What's in your hand? Sheet music, then sing. What's in your hand? A dollar bill, give. What's in your hand? Give it up so God can use it. Because you see, verse 17 of that same chapter, God tells him, now take in your hand this staff, which you shall do the sign. What sign? He just threw it on the ground and it became a snake. He picked it up and it became a stick again. God told him, now you go show that to the Israelite leaders and they will believe you. You do that sign again for them and they will believe you. Now pick up the stick and go get busy. And then look at just three verses later, Exodus 4 and 20. So Moses took his wife, his sons, had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Just a few verses ago, it was Moses' staff. It was his walking stick. Now it has been transformed into the staff of God. And it is that staff that was then used in Egypt to initiate the first few plagues. It was that staff of God that was held out over the sea and the sea parted. It was that staff of God that struck a rock and water came out in the desert. And now he says, use that same staff of God to represent my presence and my power among my people. You stand on the hill and let them see me at work. And so Moses says, Joshua, you get all the guys together, get down there in the valley and, and get busy, and I'm going to stand on the hill with the staff of God. So Joshua, in verse 10, did as Moses told him, fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Now we know why Moses is there. He's the leader. He's the guy that brought him out of Egypt. He's the one called by God at the burning bush. We know why he's there. Why is Aaron there? Aaron is Moses' brother and is also the high priest for the whole nation. So you have the political leader in Moses and you have the religious leader in Aaron. You, you have the, the two working together side by side as God is leading his nation. So we understand Moses and we understand Aaron, but who is her? Truth is, we don't know much about her. 
Jewish tradition says that her was Moses' brother-in-law, but that is Jewish tradition and there's no biblical evidence for that. In other words, here's a guy that nobody's ever heard of that at just the right moment steps in out of the shadows to serve. No spotlight, no fanfare. He's used to being in second chair and being supportive. And when needed, he steps in. We need more guys like her. Did you see what I did there? More guys like her? Never mind. <laughs> we stand up against his enemies. That's how we win. God's people also win when we pray for one another. When we pray for one another. Look at verse 11. When Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. You say, well, that's, that's, that's kind of magic. Why, what difference does this make? Why would God do something so odd? If his hand is up here, then the good guys win. And if his hand starts to, to, to fail, then the, the bad guys win. What? And the reason you and I don't get it is because you and I don't use the same posture of prayer that is prescribed and described in the Bible. Because over and over and over throughout Scripture, there are references to raising your hands in prayer. You and I don't do that. We might fold our hands in prayer. We might open our hands in prayer. But very few of us follow Scripture and raise our hands in prayer. So you see, when, he was, when his hand was up, it had nothing to do with, uh, with, with some kind of magical experience of lifting and lowering a stick. His hands were up in prayer. And as he got tired, they would start to, start to fall. And as his hands began to fall, Amalek would begin to win. The battle in the valley was dependent upon the prayer in the hill. If you've been around our church very long, or for that matter, most likely if you've been any Baptist church for any length of time, you've heard of Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon is the one whom we call the Prince of Preachers. However, when he got started at age 19, they called him the Boy Preacher. He started in a church of 80 people. He stayed in that church for 37 years until he died at an early age of 57. When he died, he had not the 80 people with whom he started, but he had the largest evangelical church in the world. When people would come through the church, because by that time, people all around the world knew of Charles Spurgeon and the Metropolitan Tabernacle, the name of the church. And so they would come to see the place and to hear him preach. And they wanted to look around. And when people would come for a visit, Spurgeon would take them downstairs into the basement where there were always people on their knees praying. And he loved to tell visitors, this is the powerhouse of the church. The battle in the valley 
was dependent on the prayers and the hills. And so James reminds us in chapter 5, Therefore confess your sins to one another, pray for one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. The people of God win when we stand up against his enemies and when we pray for one another. Aaron is praying for his people. He's praying for God's victory. And as he prays, it's hard work to pray. Let me tell you, folks, if you've never gotten tired praying, you haven't prayed deeply enough yet. Prayer was never intended to be something we check off our to-do list in the morning. Okay, I got it. Now I'm ready. Prayer is work. The effective prayer of a righteous man availeth much. There's great power in its working, and it can be tiring. And here here, here is Moses all day long praying, and he starts to get tired. Look at verse 12. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and they put it under him and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. All day long he prayed. And when he couldn't hold his hands in prayer anymore, Aaron and Hur helped him sit down. And then they held his hands up for him. God's people win when we support one another. Moses could not have done all that Moses was called to do that day had it not been for Aaron and her who were there to support. We win when we support one another. The truth is, friends, we need help from one another. God made us that way. There's something inside of us as as Americans, but even more than that, as Texans, that says, I'm tough and strong and I don't need nobody. But the reality is, God created us with a need for one another. You are one piece of the big, beautiful jigsaw puzzle, and that one piece of a jigsaw puzzle has an empty spot on purpose so that you can connect to the brother or sister next to you. We need each other. So we win when we support one another. It's easy for us to to kind of get alone, spend too much time uh, trying trying to fight the battles by ourselves. We get worn out. We get weak. And we need our brothers and sisters to hold our hands up that we might continue. Joshua could not succeed without Moses. And Moses could not prevail without Aaron and Hur. Look at verse 13. Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Joshua would not have succeeded had it not been for Moses who prayed, and Moses could not have prevailed in prayer had it not been for Aaron and Hur who supported him. Who's going to win the Super Bowl? Probably whichever team plays and works together as a team the best. You and I like to see the superstars. That's the fun stuff. 
But did you know superstars don't win championships? It's the team. Are they together in this battle, supporting one another? We win when we stand up against his enemies, when we pray for one another, when we support one another, and we win when we praise the one who brings the victory. We win when we praise the one who brings the victory. Look at verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. God says, man, this is too good to forget. Write it down. We want to tell this story and make sure Joshua hears what I say. He's down there fighting. He needs to hear this encouragement later. You tell him his fight has not been in vain. You tell him and write it down for everyone else to see that God is going to, from this day on, He's going to wipe out Amalek. He said, God's people have won, and I want a record of it. Write it down. And so Moses responds. Verse 15, Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Moses when God says, write this down, let's remember what happened here today. Moses built an altar to worship him, to praise him. He is the one who brings the victory. And so Moses praises him for that. And when he does, he names this altar, the Lord is my banner. Yahweh Nisi, the Lord is my banner. Well, I, I, I tried to figure out what that name might mean. And so I I started thinking about what is a banner. In this case, especially in a military context, the banner is the flag that represents that people. And it is that banner then that inspires those who are serving it. It is the, the banner that unites them all together. It directs them because when they see that banner, they know which way to go. It claims that land as its own. When the battle is over, it is the victor's banner that flies. During the War of 1812, a 35-year-old American lawyer was stuck on a British ship when the Battle of Baltimore began. He watched all night as the British attacked Fort, Mount, uh, Fort McHenry. He looked forward to the dawn when there would be enough light to see if the United States flag still flew over the fort, if the flag with 15 stars and 15 stripes was still there, he would know that the U.S. had won the victory. As the sun came up, there was just enough light to see that star-spangled banner still flying in its place. And the lawyer, Francis Scott Key, pulled a letter out of his pocket and on the back of that letter, he began writing a poem called Defense of Fort McHenry that would eventually be set to music and become our national anthem. Oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming? As the sun was going down, we saw the flag. Will we see it again when the sun comes up? Whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight or the ramparts we watched 
were so gallantly streaming. The rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Oh, say, does that star-spangled banner yet wave? Or the land of the free and the home of the brave? What difference does it make? The banner. The banner unites. It inspires. It directs. And it claims its own. If that flag is flying over Fort McHenry, when the sun comes up, we've won. And so Moses says, this is Yahweh, my banner. The one who unites, the one who inspires, the one who directs, and the one who claims his own. And then in verse 16, there is that interesting phrase. As he built the altar, he named it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. That is odd sounding to us, but remember what Moses has been doing all day? He says, what caused this thing to happen is that there was a hand on the throne of Almighty God. There is great power in the prayers of God's people. We are touching the throne of God. 